Well, good morning to you all. This is a beautiful day. This is a lovely day. Now, last Sunday, was it last Sunday morning that it was so humid? Last Sunday morning? The Sunday before that? Okay. <laughs> it left an indelible impression on me. So I'm just so happy that this one is not like that. This is just a wonderful day. So did I say good morning to you? Good morning to you all? I won't mention, I won't mention to whom I sent this, but there was a thought that came to me last week, and I sent a little bit of an email message to someone, and there's a verse of scripture that came to mind. I believe it's from Zechariah, from the prophet Zechariah. And I believe that the passage, I didn't bring the passage with me this morning, but I believe the passage is prophetic with regard to the end of the age which we are living in now. And it talks about the day coming, the day of darkness. A day of darkness is coming. And the thought came to me that we are in the eventide or the evening of that, of, of the age. And the passage says that there's coming a day, it was day of darkness. And then it says, but in the evening there will be light. In the evening there will be light. Now, what I want to share with you today is that we are living in this period of tremendous darkness. I'm not talking about external darkness, but I'm talking about spiritual blindness and darkness. I think if a person does not know that, then of course um, these words will not make a lot of sense. But we are living in a time of tremendous spiritual darkness. But at the same time, we're living in the end of the age. and This is the evening of the age. But at the same time, the promise is that there will be light. And I'm aware of that, and I think many are aware of the fact that there is a tremendous light that is capable of permitting us to see, even though we're entering into a period of darkness, we're also in a period of time where there is light that enables us to see things that we have not seen before. And if we've seen them before, we can see them more clearly now than perhaps we've ever seen them before. So there's kind of a dichotomy going on, kind of a contradiction. So on the one hand, you hear people talking about a darkening of the age, a blinding of the culture, a diminishing of spiritual light and understanding. And so that is occurring, and we see that happening. At the same time, we say that there is occurring a wonderful visitation of the spirit of truth that enables us to see things that we have not seen before. So in the evening there will be light. I want to make reference this morning to Matthew chapter 12. If you'd like to open your Bible, if you have it with you, to Matthew chapter 12, I'd like to read a few verses from this passage. And also, I want to visit the prophet Isaiah in chapter 42 of Isaiah. So if you have a couple of fingers, you could find those locations, Matthew 12 and Isaiah chapter 42. Before I read from Matthew chapter 12, can, can I just without, and, and if your mind goes to politics and what I'm about to say, I, I'm not really designing that your mind go there. I'm not, I'm not wanting you to go to politics. I'm not wanting you to go to any particular person or so on. It may be unavoidable that your mind might go there, but I'm saying I'm not trying to lead you there. But I am suggesting to you that we're living in a period of time where there seems to be an unreasonable support for various things. And I'll just leave that open-ended. And I want to uh, emphasize the word unreasonable. 
Have you ever spoken, please don't answer, have you ever spoken to anyone who was completely unreasonable? Have you ever tried to engage in a conversation with an individual who was completely unreasonable? I've had many conversations like that, not in recent years, not as many, but I, I, I can tell you example after example of attempting to reason with an individual who was incapable in that moment of reasoning. We're living in a time where there seems to be unreasonable support for certain things. So in other words, people support certain things and people and ideologies and they support them, but there doesn't seem to be any rational basis for that. And the reverse of that is also true that we're living in a time of unreasonable opposition. Maybe this is the one that you see more often where there seems to be unreasonable opposition. There's opposition to people. There's opposition to ideas. There's opposition to certain kinds of phrasings. And the opposition doesn't seem to be centered on logic or reasonableness, but it's completely irrational and unreasonable. And we're living in that period of time. And I want to say to you that that's not new. There's nothing new under the sun, but there is a revisiting of this kind of dynamic in our culture where there's an unreasonable opposition to things. This brings us to Matthew chapter 12. For example, Jesus with his disciples, it's a Sabbath day, and he's walking through the field on the Sabbath day. It'll be a rather short journey because there's a Sabbath day's journey. You can't walk beyond about three quarters of a mile on the Sabbath day. He's walking with his disciples and they're walking through a field of standing grain. And the pathway winds its way through the fields and the grain is standing in head, about to be harvested. I think it's a barley harvest. And his disciples are hungry. Matthew writes this in his gospel. By the way, Matthew was a tax collector. Jesus called him while he was engaged in his vocation of collecting taxes, a despised job. And this is Matthew's account. And so his disciples were hungry and they began to take little heads, you know, from the standing. And they took little heads off, which was permissible to do because they were hungry and they began to eat this as they walked. And the Pharisees who were watching, and the Pharisees are opposed to Jesus and they're trying to find anything they can to find fault in him. doesn't matter what it is. It's an unreasonable opposition. Unreasonable. Completely irrational and unreasonable. Now there's a relationship between the time in a culture when there's a manifestation of this unreasonableness, irrational thinking, conclusions that make no sense, there's a, there's a relationship between a culture that is dominated by this kind of unreasonableness and a manifestation of demonic influence. There's a link between the two. I'm going to say to you this morning that I believe that there is a manifestation of demonic influence in the culture that, we're, that we are living in. And as we see the age continuing to, to decline into the twilight of the age, we will see more and more manifestation of this. The manifestation may be somewhat more sophisticated than it was in the time that we're about to read, but it will become more and more pronounced 
as we proceed. So this is an unreasonable opposition against Jesus. And so the disciples began to take the little heads of grain and eat them. And Pharisees came and they began to accuse them of violating the Sabbath day. They're violating the Sabbath day by working. They're harvesting. They're working on the Sabbath day. Can you imagine the unreasonableness of all of this? So so this event now precedes the passage that I'm about to read, but they're following Jesus in his ministry and trying to find anything they can to discredit, to, to uh, oppose him at every turn. They actually have a conversation with him and they begin to accuse him. Well, well, we'll read this in just a few moments. Of being in league with Satan. There's no end to their opposition. Matthew 12 and 15, it says, um, Jesus now being aware of the fact that the Pharisees are trying to destroy him and seeking grounds upon which they can actually destroy him. It says, being aware of this, Jesus went away from there and many people joined and accompanied him and he cured all of them. And then he said this to them, and this is, this is astounding. He said, and, and he strictly charged them and he sharply warned them not to make him publicly known. So what we're talking about is people who were oppressed with various kinds of illnesses and diseases and sicknesses of all different kinds. And Jesus, of course, healed them and restored them to health and wellness from all of these things. And these people sought him out in the wilderness places and he healed them all. But then he said to them, as he healed them and restored them to wellness, and they're so excited and you know, when, when you become so excited about something, you can't wait to share that with someone else. You want to make it known. You want to shout it from the rooftops. And he said, no, don't, don't, don't make this known. He said, don't make this publicly known. Have you ever marveled at that and wondered at that? Why? He said, and there's all kinds of ideas about why Jesus would say this to his disciple or to those people whom he healed. You know, we're going to read as we proceed through this morning, we're going to come to a passage of Scripture that talks about an unpardonable, unforgivable transgression. There are certain things that can be forgiven, of course, and aren't we thankful? But there are other things that may not be forgiven in this world or in the world to come. These are very sobering words. These are not my words, but these are the words of Jesus. And so he told them not to make him not not to make this publicly known. And then we come. Matthew tells us that this was in fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And so what I would like to do with with you this morning is I'd like to go back now to the writings of Isaiah, chapter forty-two and verse one. I want to read these now. Matthew will quote these very words from Isaiah. Let's put this in a little bit of a time reference. So you say. How long before Matthew wrote his gospel did Isaiah write these words? How, how long was it? Well, it was more than 700 years. More than 700 years. So, to bring that into our own time frame, if we would go back more than 700 years, was there any document that was written around 700 plus years before this time now, today, that we could think of? Yeah, 
Let me just mention one. Magna Carta. You all know about the Magna Carta, right? The Magna Carta, about 1215, King John was the king of England, and he was very oppressive. And back then it was Rex Lex. You remember? Rex Lex. The king is law, right? The king is law. So King John felt he could do whatever he wanted, and the barons began to revolt against his rule. They came to a compromise signed by King John, and this had to do with rights and privileges of the peoples. And it was a very important document and agreement. And this was known as the Magna Carta. Well, that's about 700 plus years ago. And you know how long ago that is. And there are still some original documents, of course, in very secure places in the world today. But that's the amount of time before Matthew wrote his gospel that Isaiah wrote these words. And this is what Isaiah wrote. And, and, And by the way, who is Isaiah? Does anybody ever struggle with believing? Do you know anyone that ever struggles with believing? Believing the scriptures? Believing that the scriptures are the inspired word of God? Believing that this Bible is the Word of God, authoritative Word of God? Well, let me say this to you. How can something be written more than 700 years before an event that perfectly describes that event? How can that happen? And let's say that this happens hundreds and hundreds of times, not just once, but let's say that it happens hundreds of times. We can actually read them. We don't have to imagine this. We can actually read them. We could read this morning passages of Scripture that were were written more than a thousand years before the time of Jesus that perfectly describe him and his ministry. Isaiah was a very unique prophet. Isaiah prophesied. He was one of the Messianic prophets. He prophesied largely with regard to the Messiah and the coming of Messiah, both comings, first coming and second coming. Isaiah just didn't decide one day that he was going to write a book. Isaiah is worshiping God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as Isaiah worships the only true God, the Spirit of God comes upon Isaiah more than 700 years before Matthew and permits him, influences him to write and actually influences him so profoundly to write that he writes the word of God, so much so that he can write it in the first person as if God himself is speaking these words. You know, uh, with all due respect to skeptics, agnostics, atheists, if there's any respect due to them, some of them I think are perhaps honest to a degree, but oh, they need to open their eyes. There is some light yet in the closing of this age. And if they would open their eyes towards that light, they would begin to see. Let me read what Isaiah wrote. This is actually not just, remember now, this is not Isaiah's words. These are God's words through Isaiah. And God the Father says, Behold, my servant, more than 750 years before Jesus was born. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold. Watch the tenderness of these words. My elect in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice and right and reveal truth to the nations. This is not finished, folks. This is not finished. 
He's still doing this. Then he said this, He will not cry or shout aloud or cause his voice to be heard in the street. And this is why Matthew said that when, a, when Jesus did those wonderful works and healed the people and told them, now, don't tell, don't broadcast this, just thank God for it. Go home and, be, and rejoice in, in the health that you have. And don't broadcast it about. Don't make, it, make, don't make a big noise about it. It says he will not cry or shout aloud or cause his voice to be heard in the street. He wasn't a political rally. He didn't have political rallies. He didn't, he didn't gather people together at the street corners or at the city gates and have a big political action committee. He did not minister that way. God says, my soul delights in him. You know, we hear a lot about being Christ-like. Let me just say this to you this morning. You desire to be Christ-like. Would you like to resemble Jesus in the way you live your life? Say, is it possible? Yes, it is. Do you have a desire to be Christ-like in the way you live? The way you talk to people? The way you conduct yourself in your family? Would you like to be Christ-like? Can you be? Yes, you can be. But here's an example of what it means to be Christ-like. Let's continue to read. He will not cry aloud or shout or cause his voice to be heard in the street. He is not a rabble rouser. You're familiar with the expression a rabble rouser? You know the rabble? Every society has what referred to as rabble. These are malcontents. These are people who are these are people who have access to grind. These are people who have complaints. These are people who feel oppressed. These are people who are looking for an outlet for their agitations and complaints. And somebody comes along and provides that to them. That person is referred to as a rabble-rouser. They, they arouse the rabble. Jesus was not like that at all. Not in any way like that. Then, now the words of God. The Father, again, Isaiah 42 and 3. Listen to this. The analogy says, A bruised reed he will not break. I just feel this morning to just spend a little time. Just walk slowly through this. They walk slowly through the fields of standing grain. Let's walk slowly through the passage. You know what a, a reed is. A reed is something that grows along the riverbanks. A reed grows up. A reed is slender. A reed is tall and slender. And as the breeze blows, the, the reed sw- sways back and forth like that. But, you know, a, a reed is not, is not like a tree. It's not something that has a huge trunk. It's very whimsical and willowy and flexible. Now, a bruised reed, a bruised reed is something that is weak, like the reed is weak. But a bruised reed is a reed that has been damaged. And it would be so easy to break. If you just touch it the wrong way, it would break. People's lives sometimes are like that. People's lives sometimes are like a reed, very susceptible to being damaged. I think if we're honest, and I assume we are, in our own personalities, there is not one of us here today that is not capable or susceptible to being easily damaged, easily hurt. Maybe some have been. Maybe some are being. 
and maybe some are not just reeds, but are bruised reeds. You know, our society is actually filled with individuals whom we should love. And if we would be Christ-like, we would love. You know, some of these people are easy to criticize because they stand out as a reed that's bruised. And they're really not that attractive. Easy to make fun of. Easy to ridicule. Easy to find fault with. Here's the point. This is God the Father speaking. He said, a bruised about his, my servant, he said, in whom my soul delights. A bruised reed he will not break. You know, as he touches the lives of people who are bruised, he does not further damage them in their delicate nature and stature, but he brings wholeness to them. That's what he was doing with these people, all these people. Says a bruised reed he will not break. If we would be Christ-like, then we would be like this. It says, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. What does that mean? Well, there's a lamp and the wick goes down into the oil and it draws the oil up and you light it and it gives light to the house. What happens with the uh, wick when it begins to burn dimly? is that it indicates that uh, the supply of oil is running out. And then the wick begins to smolder, and it gives off little black deposits, and it begins to dim. And it's a dimly burning wick. It's so easy at this point to extinguish it. You know what's happening to it? It's dying. It's dying because it has uh, the life support is running low, And it's in the process, the flame is in the process of dying. And it's just burning. There's just a little bit of life left. And the analogy of God the Father with regards to his beloved Son is that a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. The gentleness, the love I'm just impressed this morning and I'm impressed to say this with, if I said nothing more than this. The love of God is manifested in His only begotten Son. It's so marvelous and wonderful. And if we would be Christ-like in this world, we would be like this. Then it says He will bring forth justice in truth doesn't say just that he will bring forth justice because everybody might have a different idea of what justice is. See, what is just for person A is not just for person B. And this is what we are in this society. But it says he will bring forth justice in truth. He will not fail or become weak or be crushed and discouraged until he has... Now listen to these words. He will not fail or become weak or be crushed and discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. Do you mean that God the Father is speaking through Isaiah the prophet and saying that the ministry of Jesus Christ will eventually lead to the establishment of justice in the earth? The answer is absolutely yes. Yes. Think about it with me. Justice in the earth. It says, And the islands and the coastal regions shall wait hopefully for him and expect his direction. And his law. 
So this is both past and future. And so returning to Matthew chapter 12 and verse 22 now, Jesus comes into the synagogue. This is the same day, the same Sabbath day. Pharisees are still following, still wanting to criticize and find fault, unreasonably so. And where there is this kind of spirit that is presiding within the society, there also will be a manifestation of demonic influence in the society. So Jesus went with his disciples into the synagogue on this day, Sabbath day. And there was a blind man there who could not speak. It says the blind and dumb man. And it tells us that the reason he could not speak and could not see was because he was under the influence. He was affected by a demonic spirit. Not every sickness is caused by a demonic spirit, but some are. This one was. And so he was, it says, under the power of a demon, was brought to Jesus, and Jesus cured him and made him whole. And how did Jesus make people whole? It says, Jesus cured him so that the blind and dumb both spoke and saw. In other words, he enabled the man to do the thing the man previously could not do. See, this is another characteristic of the ministry of Jesus. If you would be Christ-like, then to be Christ-like also involves this kind of ministry. Being Christ-like is not just not breaking a bruised reed and not quenching a diminishing wick. But being Christ-like also means releasing the oppressed and those who are pres- uh, oppressed by sickness and disease no matter what the cause. This is also Christ-like. And so he cured the man so that the man was able now to do what previously he was unable to do. Previously he could not speak Now he was able to speak. Previously he could not see. Now he was enabled to see. This is the ministry of Jesus, is to enable the things that an individual previously could not do. Now by extension, take that that out and extend it into all spheres of public life. The ministry of Jesus in your life is to permit you to do the things in his name, to glorify God, that previously you could not do. What are those things? The greatest quest in all of life is not to travel to the West Coast to find out who you are and let your hair grow down your back. It is to find out who you are in Christ Jesus. This is the greatest quest. And so all the crowds of people were stunned. They were bewildered. And they said, uh, can this be the son of David? Can this be the son of David? Well, the phrase the son of David goes back again to the Old Testament prophecies with regards to a descendant of David who would come and actually be king among them over Israel. And so they said, can this be the promised son of David? Oh, but the Pharisees are still here. I was kind of hoping they would have left. But oh no, they don't leave. They didn't leave Jesus and they won't leave you. And if you would serve the Lord faithfully with all your heart, strength, There will be Pharisees and their descendants, right? Who will find fault with you too. Should you let that deter you? 
Just worship God. Serve him. Worship him. Don't fight with the Pharisees. Don't fight with the Pharisees. Try to rationalize if you can, but that would be a difficult task. It says, but the Pharisees hearing it, they said, this man, here we come to something that is so, now we come to this transgression and sin that is not capable of being forgiven. The Pharisees hearing the people say, can this be the son of David? They said, no, this man drives out demons with the help of Beelzebub, who is the prince of demons. So in other words, he is allied, he is aligned. He has formed a coalition, this Jesus of Nazareth. He's formed a coalition with Satan. And he's formed an agreement with Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. And so when he casts out these demons like this, he's doing it with the consent of the prince of the demons. That's how he's doing this. This is what the Pharisees said. It says, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, any kingdom that is divided against itself, I want to ask all of us to take very close instruction from this, from these words. He said, any kingdom that is divided against itself is being brought to desolation and laid waste. Does that mean that if there's a government someplace in the world becomes so divided against itself from within, becomes completely divided into one side and another. I won't name parties, but one side and another. Does that mean that that government can continue to prosper and succeed and survive? And the answer is no, it can't. It can't. So he said a kingdom divided against itself is bring, being brought to desolation and laid waste. It can't survive. No city can survive if it's divided against itself. And no household can survive if it is divided against itself. The Lord has opened this up to me in a way that I had not seen before. But I'll not go into that this morning other than to say no household. No household. Husbands, wives, listen carefully to this. The words of Jesus, no household can stand and survive if it becomes divided against itself. It cannot survive. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Wives, be in submission to your husbands as unto the Lord. These are not my words. These are the words of God. And so no city can survive and no house can survive if it is divided against itself. And then Jesus said, if Satan drives out Satan, he has become divided against himself and disunified. How then will his kingdom last or continue to stand? The answer is it can't. It's impossible. He said, if I drive out demons by the help of Beelzebub, by whom do your sons drive them out? There were individuals among Israel, within Israel, who were noted as exorcists, who had an ability to cast out evil spirits. God-given. Jesus is saying, well, whose help do they have? He said, if I drive out demons by the help of Beelzebub, how, how do your sons drive them out? And then he said, for this reason, they will be your judges. But listen to this. But, he said, but, but. I'm going to come to a close. But, he said, if it is by the Spirit of God 
that I drive out demons. And of course it is and was. If it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And the Amplified Bible says, before you expected it. One of the evidences of the kingdom of God being manifested to us is this very thing. The driving out of evil spirits by the Spirit of God. He said, if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Then he said, and I'm going to him down to the latter portion of Matthew 12. He said, therefore, I tell you, I'm going to close with these words. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy, every evil, abusive, injurious speaking or indignity against sacred things can be forgiven man. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? It is attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to evil. It is attributing the ministry of Jesus and the works of God the Father. It's attributing them to evil rather than the Holy Spirit. So it's taking the fruit, the works of the Holy Spirit and saying this is accomplished by a demonic realm. You know, I must say this before we close. It's become rather fashionable for even in our Christian culture for individuals to find fault with other believers, to find fault to the extent where Christians accuse other Christians of performing signs and wonders under the influence of evil spirits. Now, I want to say be very careful. Be very careful and cautious whenever we come to this place. There is such a thing as evil spirits masquerading as spirits of light. These should be identified and clearly, clearly identified. But we have to be very careful that we do not try to diminish the influence of a believer any place by suggesting that the ability that they have is a result of satanic influence. This has happened, I believe, and it has happened very inappropriately and without cause and justification. And I must say, this is very, very dangerous territory. And so again, he said, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Spirit, the Holy One, will not be forgiven either in this world and age or in the world and age to come. And what Jesus essentially was saying to the people is that, you know, he said with regards to himself, you could call me, he said. And this is a little tricky here, but let me close with this. He's basically saying you can refer to me in the most unflattering ways and you can be forgiven. But if you say that the works that I do who are accomplished by the Holy Spirit ministering through me, if you say that these works of the Holy Spirit are accomplished by evil spirits, then that is the unpardonable. That's the unforgivable. Not only in this world, but in the world that is to come. Well, it's a somber note to close on, but I'm going to close on the somber note. But I want to just mention before Ruth comes again, 
we're in a very dark time as we approach the end of this age. But the promise is that there will be light. Look for it. Let it find you. And be instructed in the presence of that light.